O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome back, especially those of you who are visiting with us today. I think we've got participants from the Anglican Leadership Institute today, so we may be a little tight in terms of space, but um, welcome. We're delighted to have you with us today. Uh, We are engaged in an ongoing study of the gospel according to Matthew, so if you have your Bibles, if you would please open them to Matthew. And uh, we are going to begin at verse 17 today. And we're going to go ahead and read, well, let's put it this way. We'll go ahead and read the 17 through 20. And then if we get through verse 20, those three verses, then we'll go on and read the rest of the chapter. So I know what you're thinking. He'll never get through verse 20. And all I can say to you is, O ye of little faith. So... Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When we began this section a week ago, I pointed out that this is really the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The most famous section of the Sermon on the Mount, of course, is the Beatitudes, the verses that immediately precede this. Uh, This is what we're all familiar with. If there is a famous section of the Gospel of Matthew, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And if there is a famous section of the Sermon on the Mount, it is certainly the Beatitudes. But actually, the Beatitudes are only the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Every good sermon should have some sort of an introduction, some sort of a body, and some sort of a conclusion. And that is certainly the case with this sermon. And these are just the introduction. Jesus doesn't actually get into the heart of the message until you get to the section where we are today. Scholars refer to verse 17 as a portion of what is known as an inclusio, which I pointed out last week is a rhetorical device normally used by orators in the ancient world to signal the beginning of a new idea or a new thought or a new argument. It's comparable to what we would have in terms of a paragraph when it comes to writing. The Beatitudes are really just a description, if you will, of what the rest of this sermon is really going to be all about, the kind of person that this sermon is really all about. You get a thumbnail sketch of that person in the Beatitudes, what they are like. Now, the inclusio, as I said, is this rhetorical device. It is a phrase, a repetition of a phrase at the beginning and the end of the section, which sort of bookends it. And the phrase here that is the inclusio is the expression, the law and the prophets. Uh, Jesus introduces it here at chapter 5, verse 17. When you get to chapter, 12, uh, chapter 7, excuse me, verse 12, uh, he uses that phrase again, the law and the prophets. Now, Jesus could have used any phrase as his rhetorical device, as the inclusio, to signal the beginning of this new section in the sermon. But I think he uses this phrase, the law and the prophets, for a very specific reason, and it's what I want us to take a look at today. I think Jesus uses that expression, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, heaven and earth will not pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Because you see, that is exactly what Jesus was accused of doing. That's exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees accused Jesus of doing. The scribes and the Pharisees regarded themselves as those who were responsible for upholding the Law and the Prophets. They were the guardians of that Old Testament tradition. 
And of course, they were very jealous of Jesus, very jealous of the fact that he hadn't been to any of the rabbinical academies. He had never been formally licensed to preach, and yet Jesus appears on the scene, and when he begins to speak, it's like E.F. Hutton. When, when Jesus talked, people listened, and they were drawn to him, and they could not help but be drawn to him. He was compelling. He had these marvelous images, I mean, very powerful images, like camels creeping through the eye of a needle. And people just were drawn to Jesus, sometimes huge numbers. And the people were, the scribes and the Pharisees, is extremely jealous of the Lord. And they did everything in their power to try and undermine him. But the other reason they were opposed to Jesus is they regarded him as teaching something that was contrary to the Old Testament tradition. And you can see this. The people would sometimes say, what is this? A new teaching. And one is having authority. In other words, the scribes and the Pharisees had a derived authority. They would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so said, and Jesus would say, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And so the charge that was sometimes levied against Jesus was this charge that he had come to undermine the law and the prophets. And what the Lord is saying here very carefully and very emphatically is that that is not what he had come to do. He had not come to abolish the law or the prophets, he says, what I've actually come to do is not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And we talked briefly about what that means. What does it mean to fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, some have suggested that Jesus was able to keep, because of his divine nature, Jesus was able to keep the law in a way that no one previously had been able to do. No one else has ever been able to keep the law perfectly. There's no one righteous, no, not one. But Jesus is our great high priest. He's like us in every respect except for one. What? He did not sin. So some have argued that's what Jesus means when he says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Well, he certainly did that. But that's not what he means here. When he says, I have come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, what he means is I have come to fill the law. I've come to give full expression to what the law and the prophets are really all about. Jesus is saying, the Old Testament, all that you find back there that you are so concerned about, scribes and Pharisees, that you are such guardians of, I want you to know that all of that is not undermined by me. It finds its fulfillment in me. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system, for example, Jesus would say, was a pointer to what? A pointer to what I have come to do. Jesus was saying, I am what the law and the prophets are really all about. You've heard me say before, the Bible has many writers, but it has one author, and it has one theme, and that theme is the saving work of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the theme that runs not just from Matthew through the book of Revelation, that is the theme that runs through the book of Genesis, the whole way through the Old Testament, the whole way through the New Testament, the Gospels, the Epistles, and so forth, right on to the book of Revelation. It is that common thread that holds the whole thing together. So that is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, I haven't come to undermine the law and the prophets. I've actually come to give them their fullest meaning so that you can understand what this is really all about. And then he goes on to say this, For I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will in any way pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus is saying, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. But in doing that, he also says, furthermore, I want you to know that the law and the prophets still have power over your life. Now, when Jesus says that, what I think he is doing is he is establishing the authority of the Word of God. Now, that's what he's saying to them. Look, I'm not undermining the prophets and the law. I've come to fulfill them. And furthermore, I am of the mind that not a jot, not a tittle, that's the way the old King James put it, not a jot nor a tittle would in any wise pass from the law. Some translations say a yod or an iota. That is the smallest letter of the alphabet. Not one comma, not one seraph, not one stroke of the pen will in any way pass from the law until all is completed. Now, I think that is a very important point for us. Because as you have heard me say, perhaps on other occasions, I think that the real issue facing the church, the church in general today, and the Anglican communion in particular today, is an issue of authority. Now, I know everybody wants to tell you, well, it's all about sex. Everybody's got sex on the brain, which you 
you know, it's an odd place to have it, to be honest with you. The whole crisis is not about human sexuality. That is a symptom. The real issue today is the issue of authority. What is the authority for the life of the church and for the individual Christian? Now, that's the real issue. Now, in the Roman Catholic tradition, there is no doubt whatsoever as to where the authority resides. It resides in the magisterium. But in the Protestant tradition, and certainly in our own Anglican tradition, which grows in part out of the Reformation, the authority has always been vested with what? The Bible. The Word of God. We at least give lip service to this every Sunday when we read the lessons. Whether the lesson comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah or the writings of the Apostle Paul, when we get to the end, we don't say the Word of Isaiah or the Word of Paul. We say the Word of the Lord. That's because we believe, we give lip service to the idea at least, that while God may have used various individuals to produce the Bible, the Holy Spirit nevertheless so superintended the process that what was ultimately produced was not the words of Paul or the words of Isaiah, but the Word of God. Now that was the classic view of the church. Now we said that that fell out of favor beginning in the latter part of the 18th century through the 19th century and a greater part of the 20th century with the rise of higher criticism and so forth. And the result was that many of the mainline Protestant denominations lost their confidence in the Bible, in both its inspiration and its authority. At best, the liberal churches were willing to say the Bible contains the words of men and God. But it's not just the Word of God. And you've got to turn it over to the scholars to tell us which is which. Now, this is nothing new. Anybody that was raised in the Episcopal Church knows that's the whole reason why we left. <laughs> it's because they had lost their confidence in the authority, the inspiration, the trustworthiness of the Bible. If those of you were, if any of you were here last night when John Dixon gave his lecture, uh, which was as a tour de force, it was like drinking out of a fire hydrant, to be perfectly honest with you, but it was, it was a tour de force. But one of the things he pointed out was the trustworthiness of the Scriptures, particularly the New Testament. Of all the books of antiquity, there is no more well-attested to book than the New Testament. In fact, if the New Testament has to be regarded, even by secular scholars, as untrustworthy, we can't trust any piece of ancient literature. All of ancient history passes into oblivion if that is the case. And yet, nevertheless, the issue is not so much even the trustworthiness of what the text says. For the liberal churches, it's the authority of the Bible. They just don't believe that the Bible really is the Word of God, and therefore it is not necessarily binding on us as Christian people. Now, I think I'm in a safe crowd here to say that we have a problem with that. We have a problem with that because we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And that it contains what? All things necessary to salvation. So what Jesus says here about the authority of the Bible is important, even though the liberal churches deny it. But that doesn't mean that the conservative churches and the evangelical churches get off scot-free. We may believe that the Bible is the Word of God, but we still have a problem today. And our problem is this. We believe that the Bible is authoritative. We simply don't believe that the Bible is sufficient. See, there's a difference between the two. The liberal churches don't regard the Bible as authoritative. Many of the conservative churches, unfortunately, don't regard the Bible as sufficient. Which is to say, we live in a very different world from the one that Paul lived in. Our concerns are different. Our challenges are radically different. And yes, the Bible is the Word of God, but it's not enough to do the church's work in the world today. So it has to be the Bible plus something else. That's the way we think, isn't it? And that's what we do. We take the Bible and we say, oh yes, the Bible's the Word of God, of course it is, but then we've got to add all of these other things to it in order to make it relevant. That's a wonderful word, a buzzword, relevant to our culture. What's the danger of this? Well, I'll tell you what the danger is. The danger is that we inevitably end up doing the church's work in the world's way. And this is extremely dangerous in an entertainment culture. 
And if you are an American today, you live in an entertainment culture. Entertainment is the most important thing to us. I mean, is there, a, is there a house in America that doesn't have a Bible? Probably. There was a time when that wasn't the case, but I guarantee you there's hardly any house in America today that doesn't have a television. And not just a television. Multiple televisions. I'm not going to ask you how many televisions you have in your house. And you probably don't have one of those little sets. You have one of those great flat screen plasma TVs. We've got entertainment systems. That's what we call it. Because we're all about being what? Entertained. And you can see this permeating practically every aspect of communal life. We said that entertainment has now affected the news. When I was growing up, there were three networks and three newscasters. It was NBC, ABC, CBS, and you had people like Walter Cronkite, John Chancellor, and David Brinkley, and they reported the news. Every, dinner, every night after dinner, my grandmother would say, I want to watch the news. That's what they called it, the news. Somebody pointed out to me after last week's lecture that we don't call it the news anymore. We call it a news show. Why do we call it a news show? Because there's no business like show business. It's a form of entertainment. And we simply don't report the news. We what? We get in all these pundits. And it doesn't matter whether it's CNN over there on the left or whether it's Fox and Friends over here on the right, the reality is the design is to entertain. And when was the last time that you saw an ugly newscaster? <laughs> they got to look good, don't they? Why? Because we want to be entertained. And so we see this permeating even the news. Can you even trust the news? No, now we have fake news. That's entertainment, my friends. That's why we watch it. Reality TV. I do not care about the Kardashians. I, I really, I don't, to be honest with you, until I asked my wife about I didn't even know who the Kardashians were. But millions of people tune in to see how these people live their train wreck of a life. Now that's entertainment. It affects the news. It affects education. I was bold enough last week in the wake of Clemson's victory, national championship, to talk a little bit about Dabo Swinney and pointed out that that man makes $7 million a year. When you add it all together, $7 million a year as the head coach of Clemson University. And I thought, my gosh, if he makes that much, how much does the president of the university make? And he makes about $750,000, 10 times less than the football coach that Technically speaking, he has the power to dismiss. Now, now what's, what's wrong with this picture? Now, when you say something like that, and I said that to my son, who just, he was wearing his Clemson jersey all, he doesn't even go to Clemson, but that doesn't matter, it's a religion. So he was wearing his Clemson jersey, and he was talking about all this, and I got into this argument with him, and he said, but Dad, you don't understand how much good that football program does for the university. It brings in all kinds of money that makes it possible to build libraries and to do research programs. And I said, absolutely, but it just proves my point. That if we're going to do education and build libraries and do research programs, we have to first what? Entertain people. Because that's where the money is, that's where the interest is. So we see this in education, this trickle-down effect. And I would go so far as to say that we see it in the church as well. We see it very clearly in the church. There are church services that are more entertainment than anything else. I was at a church in Pennsylvania some years ago that they had a sanctuary. It was a modern sanctuary. It was not a traditional building, but it was nevertheless a handsome building. The older pastor retired, a new pastor took over, and the first thing he did was he painted the entire front of the sanctuary black. And then he brought out these lights, strobe lights, different color lights, and fog machines, and so forth. And you felt as though you were at a concert. You didn't feel as though you were in the presence of God, you were in a holy space. The space felt like you were in a concert, and that was the idea. And, and you can see this in terms of the change in architecture. Now, I'm going to be, be honest with you, I'm a traditionalist. I know that comes as a huge shock to all of you. <laughs> 
But you can see this in the change in terms of church architecture. Uh, John Dixon preached at St. Philip's this past week, and um, he loved the pulpit. He described it as the tower. He said, I was up there in the tower. But it was very clear. When anybody walked into this church when it was first built in 1838 and they looked down that aisle, the most prominent feature was what? The pulpit. That's, that's what this is all about. That's what this is all about. And now you go into places and what? Television screens. Not that I have anything against screens. I know somebody's going to come up and say, well, our church has screens. I understand that. But do you understand the difference? What the focus is? Something has been lost. And we live in this culture that is so dissatisfied, a culture that is constantly changing, where we always have to stay one step ahead of the people in order to keep them engaged. We have to continue to keep them entertained. I had um, lunch a couple of months ago with a dear friend from Pittsburgh, John Guest. I think some of you know who Dr. John Guest was. And uh, John was commenting about services to St. Philip's. He said, it's so refreshing. And John Dixon, who was here last night, said he wishes he could take our services, what we did on Sunday, even though it was morning prayer, take what we did on Sunday and what we did last night at that 5 or 30 service, which is a little bit different. He said, I wish I could just take this and transplant it in Sydney. He said, it is so innovative. And I thought, innovative? <laughs> we haven't changed since 1838. What do you mean, innovative? But this is just the problem, you see. In our culture, that which starts out innovative becomes standardized. And what becomes standardized eventually becomes fossilized. And that's what's happening with many contemporary forms of worship. They were very innovative at one point. Oh, that sounds great. We don't want to have somebody up there in the pulpit and in all those robes. Let's get rid of all that stuff. And we'll just have somebody up there in skinny jeans sitting on a bar stool. And we'll have, you know, somebody doing some sort of a skit and so forth. And that's how we'll do entertainment. And oh, so innovative. But now everybody's doing that. And so what was originally innovative has become standardized. And now it's becoming fossilized. And we've been doing the same thing since 1838. We look innovative all of a sudden. <laughs> now that's the kind of world in which we are living and moving. And therein lies the danger. Because you're in that kind of a culture. You think we've always got to entertain people. We've always got to be out in front of them. We've always got to be doing something new and radical and different. And as a result of that, we think to ourselves, the Bible is fine. The Bible is the Word of God, but the Bible's not enough. I want to submit to you today, the Bible is really all the church needs. And furthermore, what the church needs more than anything else is the Bible. It needs the Word of God. It is what God promises to bless. Sometimes God blesses the music. Pat Gould, where are you? Sometimes God blesses the music. Frequently here at St. Philip's, I've discovered. Sometimes God blesses the words of the preacher, for which I am truly grateful. But God doesn't promise to do that. What he promises to bless is his word. The word of the Lord never comes back void or empty. The grass withers, the flower fades, Isaiah says, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And I submit to you the Bible is not only authoritative for our lives as Christians, we are to live under its authority, but I submit to you it is also sufficient for the church's task in the world today. So for instance, we ask a series of questions. Is the Bible sufficient for the work of evangelism? Is the Bible enough to bring people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? Some people would say no. No, you've got to get people in the doors. And I think there's a place for that. I think there's a place for getting people in the door. But the question is, once they're in the door, what do you do with them? There's an old expression that says, what you win them with is what you win them to. So we have to be very careful about that. I remember when I lived in Chiraw and I was a rector at St. David's, we would go sometimes to Charlotte to go shopping and to just see the big city. And we would ride past this huge church. I mean, it was a huge mammoth modern building, and it was painted Pepto-Bismol pink. 
And there was a sign out front that said, you have never seen a church like this before, on the inside or on the outside. Come and see us Sunday. Free Starbucks coffee. <laughs> see, that was the hook. Now, there may be a place for meeting people where they are. I don't deny that. The Apostle Paul was a master of this. But the problem with that is, is that's what they're coming and that's what they're expecting. Sometimes they don't react very well to the bait and switch. So there is a danger in this. But I submit to you the Bible is sufficient. It's sufficient for the task of evangelism. And if you don't believe me, just ask Jesus. Because that's what he did. He came preaching and teaching and they were amazed at his what? His words. And on one occasion when the disciples said to him in Mark, the beginning of Mark's gospel, get on with the work, you've been healing people, everybody wants to see you. Jesus said, let us go on to the next village also that I may preach there also, for that is why I've come out. That's why Jesus came. Now he healed people, it is true, because he could and because he had compassion. But John's gospel describes the miracles as what? Signs. A sign is not an end in and of itself. If you are traveling up I-95 and you decide you want to go to south of the border, now heaven only knows why you would want to go to south of the border, but let's just say you do. You want to go to south of the border. Do you stop at the sign that says only five miles to air-conditioned rooms at south of the border? Do you stop at the sign that says, turn back, you just passed south of the border? You don't stop at the sign. Why? Because the sign is not the destination. It is a pointer. The miracles are described as signs. Signs that point us to what? To the man and his message. So we can't get caught up, you see. We have to believe that what Jesus was about, the preaching of the word, we should be about as well. Now keep your finger there in Matthew. And I want to turn, if you will, to 2 Timothy for just a moment. This is a familiar passage to you, but it's an important passage, and we need to come back to it again and again, <laughs> because while Paul was writing to Timothy in the first century, this is certainly a description of the world in which you and I live. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days, now the last days could mean the last of the last days, it could mean that whole period of time between the Lord's ascension and His return in glory. I think that's probably what is meant here since Paul is writing to Timothy. But regardless of whether it's the last of the last days or just the last days, it's certainly a description of our day. He said, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, they'll be ungrateful unholy, heartless, unappeasable. They'll be slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. They'll be treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. When Paul says having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, who's he talking about there? He's talking about religious. He's talking about the church. He's not talking about the secular world out there. Paul would never say the secular world has the appearance of godliness. He would say they don't have any godliness at all. When he talks about those who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power, he's talking about the church. That's who he's describing here. And he's saying to Timothy, now, I'm coming to the end of my ministry. I'm locked away here in this prison in Rome. And I'm going to have to pass the mantle of leadership on to you, Timothy. You're going to have to step into my sandals, and you're going to have to do my ministry, and that's the kind of context in which you are going to do it. You can you imagine how Timothy felt? And Timothy was nothing like Paul. Everything that the New Testament indicates was that he was young, he was sickly, he was probably what we would call an introvert. The polar opposite of the Apostle Paul, except in terms of what he believed. And Timothy must have thought to himself, how am I going to do this? And furthermore, how do you follow in the footsteps of somebody like Paul? Paul, dig down into your bag of tricks and come up with something and tell me how I'm going to do it. What's the key to being effective in terms of relating the gospel to that kind of a culture? That's a good question for us, isn't it? 
That's a description of our world. We want to know, how do you proclaim the gospel? How do you get the good news of Jesus Christ into the minds and the hearts of people in that kind of a context? That's the question that's being asked. What does Paul say? Paul gives him advice. Verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my suffering. Verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. Verse 14, but as for you, here it comes. You want to know what you have to do? But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or the woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Paul does two things there. First of all, he upholds the authority of the Word of God. All Scripture is what? God-breathed. The Old King James Version, the Authorized Version, said all Scripture is inspired. Now, there's nothing wrong with that translation, except that the word inspired has lost its meaning in our culture. We think Shakespeare was inspired. Mozart was inspired. Byron was inspired. But Paul uses a very specific word, the Greek word theopneustos. It literally means breathed out by God. Theo, God, Panusta, panuma, spirit, breath, wind. It's the word from which we get the term pneumatology, having to do with the study of the Holy Spirit, but it's also the word from which we get the word pneumonia, which is a disease of what? The breathing apparatus of the body, or pneumatic drill. A pneumatic drill is a drill that is driven by air. Well, what Paul is saying is that all Scripture is literally breathed out by the breath the Spirit of God. So that's why he's saying it's authoritative for our lives because it's not just some sort of inspired piece of literature. It is, in fact, God's very words breathed out by Him. And therefore, it is binding on your life. But it's not just authoritative. Paul goes on to say it is sufficient. Sufficient for the task at hand. For all Scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable. Profitable for what? For teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. In other words, the Word of God is sufficient to bring somebody into relationship with Jesus Christ, and the Word of God is sufficient in order to bring somebody to maturity in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. And that's something that we have to remember. It is sufficient for the task of evangelism. In fact, it is the only thing that works if we are going to share the gospel. If you're concerned about the rise of militant Islam and the fact that Islam is now the fastest growing religion in the world, it's not the largest yet, but it is the fastest growing religion in the world. How many of you should be, are concerned about that? You should be concerned about it. Because let me tell you something about Islam. The Islamic religion can appear to be very cooperative when it's in the minority. When it reaches a point of parity, it becomes very competitive. And when it is in the majority, it becomes absolutely oppressive. That's how Islam works. So it may appear that it's no great threat right now, but it has now reached a point of parity or is fast approaching it, it's going to become very com com competitive. You know, there are only two missionary religions in the world. And that's Christianity, and that's Islam. Judaism is not a missionary religion. Their whole call was to come out and be separate. Hinduism is not a missionary religion. Buddhism is not a missionary religion. Islam is a missionary religion. Both Christianity and Islam have a mandate to go out and make converts. Christianity, by peaceful means, Islam, by peaceful means if possible, any means if necessary. 
And so when they reach that point where they are in the ascendancy or they are in the majority, it's going to become very oppressive. Now you say, well, how do we combat that? Well, let me tell you something. Bombs and guns are not going to do it. There's only one thing that has the power to combat that kind of growth. And that is the conversion of people to faith in Jesus Christ. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes how? By the Word of God. It's the most powerful weapon we have in our arsenal in terms of combating Islam in the world today. And so if the church decides it's no longer going to use its most effective weapon and we're going to use all these other things, let me tell you something, we are going to lose the war. So that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, look, the Bible is the word of God and it is sufficient for the task of evangelism. It's the only thing that is. Next question we might ask is, well, if the Bible is sufficient for the task of evangelism, is it really sufficient for the task of sanctification? All right, we've been saved from something, from sin and death and judgment. But the Apostle Paul in Ephesians says we have also been saved for something, for good works. We're not supposed to remain stuck as infants. Paul says that we are to grow into maturity, into the full stature of Christ. You say to yourself, is the Bible sufficient for that task? Oftentimes we don't believe so or we don't act so. As Americans, when it comes to growing in holiness, we think that there are two things. We generally have two antidotes to this idea of growing in, in holiness, growing in your relationship with Christ. Either we give people a formula or we tell them they need an experience. We Americans love formulas. We're pragmatic people. Tell us what I need to do and I'll go ahead and I'll do it. And so that's oftentimes what we tell people. Now, now you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but now you need to grow in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how do I grow in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, let me tell you, you have to do this, 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 and this. And if you do those four things, then you will grow. Now, what does that formula look like? Well, it depends upon who you're talking to, but the formula looks generally something like this. You need to go to Bible study. You need to get involved in a church. You need to do works of mercy and service. And you need to go on a short-term mission. And, and if you do all of those things, what will happen is that you will find yourself growing in grace. Now, let me be very clear. All of those things are good. You should be involved in a Bible study. This one in particular. <laughs> Second of all, you should be doing acts of mercy. You should be involved in a local church and supporting that local congregation. And I do encourage people to go on mission, short-term or long-term. But that is no guarantee that you are necessarily going to grow in grace. We're talking about something that is dynamic. It's, it's a relationship. This is not sort of input in, output. Well, somebody says, well, if it's not a matter of formula, then perhaps it's a matter of experience. We live in an experiential age. I had a friend who went to hear Tom Jones out in Las Vegas. Now, some of you may be like Tom Jones, and that's perfectly fine. But this guy was 24. And I said, you're, you're going to hear the guy that sings, What's New Pussycat? I mean, what, what, what's that all about? And here's what he said, I'm going for the experience. Well, I'm telling you right now, I wouldn't spend $300 for that experience, but he wanted the experience. We're into experiences, aren't we? And people say, if you want to grow in grace, that's what you really need. Oh, don't worry about the formulas. What you need is an experience. What you need is to tap into the power of the Holy Spirit. What you need is a second work of grace. What you need is the gift of tongues. And if you speak in tongues, oh my goodness, you'll become very spiritual indeed. Well, let me say, first off, I don't have anything against those who speak in tongues. I'm not a cessationist. I don't believe that that's something that applied only to those who lived in the apostolic age. But I do know that Paul says is the least of the gifts, and he says desire the higher gifts. He said, I would much rather speak with clarity than I would speak in tongues. So I try to speak with clarity. You may not always agree with me, but hopefully you understand where I'm coming from. 
But that's what we think. Oh, well, in our culture, what you need in order to grow is you either need a formula, do this, this, and this, and this is going to come out, that's going to be the end. Or we say you need a, a special experience. You've got to tap into the power of the Holy Spirit. As though the Holy Spirit is some sort of electrical outlet. As opposed to the third person of the Trinity. Well, let me tell you what the Bible's approach to sanctification is, as I understand it. Here it comes. You want to grow in grace? Those of you who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you want to grow and become more Christ-like? You want to grow into the full stature of the Lord? I'll tell you how you do it. At least this is how Paul says we should do it. Turn to Romans chapter 6 for just a moment. Romans, of course, is an extraordinary book. More people perhaps have been converted as a result of reading the Epistle of the Romans than maybe any other book of the Bible, certainly the great people. St. Augustine was converted as a result of reading through the Epistle of the Romans. Uh, Martin Luther was converted as a result of reading Romans chapter 1. John Wesley, the great 18th century evangelist, was converted through the means of Romans, at least by hearing Martin Luther's preface on Paul's epistle to the Romans. And these were great individuals who made great impacts for the gospel in the world in their time. And they were influenced by the epistle to the Romans. Now, as I said, Americans are very pragmatic people. What we're really normally asking is the question is, what do I have to do? I, I, I'm here, I want to get there, and the question is, what do I have to do in order to make that happen? So here I am, starting out in my relationship with Christ, but I'm supposed to grow into the full stature of Christ. What do I have to do? Isn't that the question? That's the question. All right, what do I have to do? I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul, in this weightiest of all his epistles, many would say the most influential of all the epistles, it's not until you get almost halfway through Romans chapter 6 that Paul tells his readers to do anything at all. Which means for the first five and a half chapters almost, Paul is teaching. He's teaching theology. He begins by talking about the wrath of God being poured out against a fallen and wicked humanity that is not ignorant of the truth, we suppress the truth. And God hands us over. And we start on that downhill spiral. We go from bad to worse. And we are in such a desperate situation, spiritually dead in our trespasses and in our sins, that unless God reaches down and delivers us, there is no hope. And that's what God does in the person of Jesus Christ. God does all of the work. We contribute nothing to the process except the sin from which we need to be redeemed. And yet when God does that, he makes it possible for us to come into a relationship with Him to be justified, not by anything that we do, but simply by placing our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The just shall live by faith. And Paul hammers on that, hammers on that, hammers on that. And then finally, after hammering on that for five and a half chapters, he comes to chapter 6, Verse 11, and for the first time he says, now that you know all of that, now that I've said all of that, here's what you've got to do. Are you ready? Here's the key to sanctification for growth in Christ. Paul's recipe for it. Reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul says that's the key to salvation. That's the key to growth in a relationship with Jesus Christ, to reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There was a book written back in the 1940s by Thomas Wolfe called You Can Never Go Home Again. I don't know how many of you read it. Classic of literature. You may have read it in college. It's the story of a young man who writes a novel based on his hometown and the characters in his hometown, and the, the novel becomes an immediate success. And he goes home thinking that he's going to be the conquering hero, but the people in the hometown don't necessarily like the way he's depicted them. Sort of like that book, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Any of you read that book about Savannah? Uh, I, <laughs> man told me on one occasion that he, um, he had read that book, and you know, it was very interesting. A lot of people Savannah didn't like it. And uh, he said he was in Charleston, and he was walking down a street, and he saw a lady, 
in a nice print dress, sitting on a bench outside of a shop, and she was reading that book, Midnight in the Guard of Good and Evil. And he came up to her and he said, I guess they'll be writing a book like that about Charleston. And she slammed the book shut and she looked up and she said, they will not. We're decent people. Ah, <laughs> oh, you can never go home again. That's what the book was all about. This young man thought he was going to go home and be hailed as a hero. They weren't satisfied with what he had written. They were disappointed with the way they were depicted and they turned on him. Hence the title of the book, he realized, he discovered, you can never go back again. You cannot go home again. He had this wonderful line in it. You can't go back home to your family, back home to your childhood, back home to a young man's dreams of glory and fame, back home to places in the country, back home to the old forms and systems of things which once seemed everlasting but were changing all the time. You cannot go back home to the escapes of time and memory. Let me tell you something, that is what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 6. He's saying that if you're a Christian, you are not what you once were. You are a new creation. You were once dead in your trespasses and in your sins. You are now alive to God in Christ. You were once in bondage, you've been set free. You were once blind, now you see. You were bought with a price. And that's why Paul says, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. What he is saying is, you can't go back to your old way of life. And so recognize that. And once you recognize that, you'll realize you have nowhere else to go but forward. And the Bible study and all of those other things will be helpful in that. But the key is understanding you can't go back. Now the way I put this in a Sunday school some weeks ago is like this. 15-year-olds, or 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds always want to be 15 so they can drive. 15-year-olds always want to be 18 so they can say they're free. 18-year-olds want to be 20-year-olds so they can drink. 21-year-olds can't wait to get away from your house to go to college so that they can do what they want. And then they become 25 and they've got to have a job and responsibility and pay their own bills and all of a sudden they wish they could be 15 again. Now, we've all been there, and we've all had that kind of experience. But can you go back again? You can't go back again, can you? In fact, even though a person wants to go back, because they can't, they can sometimes act childish. You ever known somebody who acts childish? They can't go back to being a child, but they can act childish. And when they act childish, what do we say to them? For heaven's sake, grow up! Women say it to men all the time. For heaven's sake, grow up. Paul says that's the key to salvation. It is knowing what God has done for you in Christ. And it is recognizing on the basis of what you have been taught in the Word of God that you cannot go back, therefore you must go forward. That's the key to sanctification, my friends. That's how you grow in grace when you come to the realization based upon what you've been taught in the Word of God that you can't go back to what you once were. You can only go forward. So we say, all right, well, the Bible is sufficient for the work of evangelism, sufficient for the task of sanctification, but is it sufficient to the task of knowing the will of God? As a pastor, I have to say that next to the whole problem of pain, next to questions about pain and suffering and why God allows these things to take place in the world. And I will say to you that I think there are answers to those things. They're not pat answers, but I think there are answers to suffering and pain in the world. But next to the question of suffering and pain in the world, the one that I find most people struggle with more than anything else is knowing the will of God. I want to know what, what God's will is for my life. What does He want me to do? What does He want me to be? How many of you have ever struggled with knowing what the will of God is for your life? You're not alone. Everybody's hand ought to go up. I'm glad to see the clergy raising their hands. Other times, I don't know what the heck. Well, how do we know the will of God? Well, many people today say, well, what you need is a sign. You ever say that to the Lord? Oh, God, give me a sign. 
We want signs. We want wonders. All right, Lord, I'm going to take my magic eight ball, and I'm going to shake it, and whatever you tell me, that's what I'm going to do. That's the way we act. That's the way we operate. You want to know what the will of God is? The Bible will tell you what the will of God is for your life very clearly. Let me give you a couple of examples of how the Bible tells you what the will of God is for your life. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He predestined, to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He called, and those He called, He justified, and those He justified, He glorified. That is God's will for your life if you're a Christian. Pure and simple. God's will for your life is that ultimately you will be conformed to the image of His Son. That having been predestined, you will be called, and having been called, you'll be justified, and having been justified, ultimately you will be glorified. You want to know what God's will for your life is? It's told you in the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments tell you what God wants for your life. This is how you're supposed to live. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit murder. You shall not covet. You shall honor your father and your mother. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. What's the summary of the law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You want to know what God's will is for your life? That's what God's will is for your life. That's what God wants for your life. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Paul says it there in Romans chapter 12. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is to say, you are not supposed to walk in step with this world, but out of step with this world. That's God's will for your life. Now somebody might say, well, is that all? I don't know about you, but that keeps me pretty busy. But that's God's will for your life. You want to know what God's will for your life is? That's what God's will is for your life. Now, somebody might say, "Bad, but it's not specific enough. I, I understand that's what God's general will is, but I want to know specifically, what does God want for my life? What kind of a job should I take? Where should I live? What kind of a person should I marry? See, that's what we think of when we discern the will of God. Well, I think the Bible also tells us about those things as well. Let me say this, though. The Bible's not an answer book. That is to say, you're not going to be able to go back to the back of the index and find the answers. The Bible is a living word, and God treats us as adults. And what he does is he lays down certain principles for us. And as long as we live our lives in conformity to those principles, there is then great freedom for us to live. God sets parameters, but as long as we live within the parameters, there is freedom for us. You see this very clearly in the very beginning of the Bible. God took Adam and Eve, placed them in the garden. Now, it's, it's paradise. And he tells them, and he sets the parameters, listen to the parameters, you may eat of any tree in the garden, and we can assume there were lots of trees, delectable fruit. He said, you may eat of any tree in the garden except for what? The tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of that tree, then what? You will surely die. Now, there are the parameters. Live within those parameters, and you've got freedom. Well, what other trees can I eat? You can eat any tree you want. Just don't go outside that parameter. Don't eat of that tree. But otherwise, within that parameter, go at it. Gorge yourself. Enjoy yourself. I want you to understand that is how God treats us when it comes to these more specific things. What God does is He lays out certain principles for our lives, and if we live within the confines of those principles, then there is great freedom for us to do as we please, and we can expect that God will bless it. So, for example, when it comes to something like marriage, what does Paul say? He says, do not be unequally yoked, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, with unbelievers. That's the parameter. Believers are not supposed to marry unbelievers. Now, there's a reason for that. 
It's because it can become a great tension in the relationship. Now, sometimes people get converted later in life. But if you are a Christian, you've never been married, you want to marry somebody, Paul is very clear, you should not marry an unbeliever. I always say to young women, missionary dating does not work. Young women oftentimes think, well, I'll change him. Listen, if he doesn't treat you well before the marriage, chances are he's not going to treat you well after the marriage. So Paul is very clear. Those are the parameters. Believers marry believers and, and, and live within those parameters. Now you say, well, I'm dating three women, a blonde, a brunette, and a redhead. They're all believers. They all want the same dreams that I have. Which one should I marry? God says, I don't care. Marry whichever one you want. Marry the best looking one, as long as you live within the parameters. You see the freedom that we have as Christians, provided that we live within those parameters. That's what the Bible is saying. It's treating us as adults. Same thing is true in terms of jobs and careers. I see a lot of clergy out there. This is a good one for us. Which church should I take? What's the parameter? Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. As a clergyman, that's the thing that I should be seeking. God's kingdom and his righteousness. So you've got a number of parishes looking at you and say, well, I'm going to choose this one because they pay me more. Or I'm going to choose this one because it's more prestigious. Or I'm going to choose this one because I like that town a whole lot better than I like that one. That's not the way God operates. He says, look, as long as you are seeking first my kingdom and my righteousness, if you have a number of options, well, that's all right. Choose whatever option where you think your gifts will best be utilized for my kingdom and choose, and I will bless that. You see, there's freedom within the parameters. Where should I live? Same sort of thing. Same sort of thing. You can live within the parameters, and you can read Romans chapter 13 for yourself. So I believe that the Bible is sufficient to know the will of God for your life. What about sufficient for social reform? This is an important one for us, given the fact that our country right now is in the longest government shutdown in its history. How many of you agree we need social reform in America today? You better believe it. And it doesn't matter if you're a Republican, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat. Everybody agrees we need social reform. But the question is, how does that social reform come? We think it comes by means of the political process. We think that the way that you bring about true reform in the world is you get the right person in office. Let's elect the right person to the legislature or the right person to the governor's office or the right person to Congress, to the House, or to the Senate, or to the White House, and we'll be able to change the world. Well, how do you think that's been working for us? Chuck Colson. Uh, many of you probably know Chuck Colson was a, a famous um, evangelist and minister and Christian intellectual. Uh, he had for years been um, in prison because he was part of the Watergate scandal. He was a lawyer. He was the chief counsel to the President of the United States. And when Richard Nixon got embroiled in all of that and resigned, um, he was part of the Nixon team. He was a cutthroat lawyer. He was a cutthroat man. He once said that he would have crawled over the back of his mother in order to defend the President of the United States. Well, he got caught up in this, went off to prison, and while he was in prison, he had a real conversion, a genuine conversion. And when he came out, he didn't go back into law, he came out of prison and he started Prison Ministry International, Prison Fellowship. And he began to minister to people who were captives. And like Karl Barth, he said, I found that those people were the easiest people to preach the gospel to because nobody had to convince them that they were sinners in need of a Savior. <laughs> a whole lot easier than what we would call nice people, decent people. And on one occasion, he was invited to speak at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C., Ronald Reagan was in the White House at the time. He was the main speaker, but the president was going to show up, as he oftentimes does. And uh, it had been some time since he had been back in Washington, D.C., and he just, it was uncomfortable. Washington seems to be this epicenter of power and so forth, and he's at the National Prayer Breakfast, and Colson's going to be speaking, and he said he's sitting in there, and everybody's talking and waiting, and all of a sudden there was this murmur that ran through the crowd. 
And everybody began to stand up and crane their necks, and he knew exactly what was happening. The president was coming. And all of a sudden, every eye in the room turned toward Ronald Reagan as he came in. Chuck Colson was called to be the main speaker, but nobody cared about Colson at this point because the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, had arrived. The president came, took his place on the dais, and came time for Chuck Colson to stand up and speak. And you know what the words out of his mouth were? He said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you today, the kingdom of God does not arrive on Air Force One. Now that takes boldness to say that in the president's presence. But Chuck Colson knew what the presidency was all about. And he knew that that's not where real change comes. Now I'm not suggesting to you that as Christians we withdraw from the political process, not at all. We have a responsibility. But what I am telling you is that that is not where change takes place. What we're talking about is the kingdom of God, not the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world are to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. He is to reign forever. Kingdoms wax and wane, they rise and fall. And I hate to tell you, the Greek Empire disappeared, the Egyptian Empire disappeared, the Roman Empire disappeared, the British Empire is in the process of disappearing. And you may not like to hear this, but you need to hear it. The American Empire is one day going to disappear. There's only one kingdom that lasts, and that is the kingdom of Christ the kingdom of God, and it does not arrive on Air Force One. So that's not the means of social reform. That's not to say that we don't pass laws and we don't take part in the democratic process, but what I am telling you is if you really want to transform society, you transform society by the Word of God. And I'm going to give you a real-life historical example of this. So bear with me for five minutes. Geneva, 1535. What happened in 1535 in Geneva, Switzerland? The Reformation came to Geneva. Geneva was a notorious place in the 16th century in 1535. It was every bit like New Orleans in Mardi Gras. Uh, people were drunk. Uh, they ran through the streets singing body songs, naked. It was a corrupted place, and the city, it was a city-state, was run by what was known as the Committee of 200. And it was the responsibility of that Committee of 200 to maintain peace and order in the city, and they just didn't know what to do. They had a problem, but they didn't know what the problem was, so they were trying to diagnose it, and they came to the conclusion, because the Reformation was sweeping so much of Europe, that the problem must be Roman Catholicism. That, that, that's the real reason, real reason that we're having all these troubles. It's Catholicism. So, let's bring the Reformation here. And so they invited this man by the name of John Calvin to come to Switzerland. And John Calvin came to Geneva, and he, um, they didn't even really recognize him at first. They said, there's your church, go preach, and they forgot to pay him for a whole year. No matter, he continued to preach the gospel and be about his work. But he began to sort of step on some toes, make people a little uncomfortable. He told them that they'd been saved from something, for something, and they needed to start living lives of holiness and conformity to Christ and stop running through the streets naked and singing body songs and so forth. And people start to get irritated and aggravated because, you know, they don't like that kind of preaching from the pulpit. And as a result, they said, let's get rid of this Calvin guy, and they did. They got rid of him. He was there for one year, and they got rid of him. He went off to another town for about three or four years, Meanwhile, things back in Geneva only went from bad to worse. And finally they said, well, things weren't great when Calvin was here. He irritated a lot of people, but things seemed to maybe have a slight improvement, so they invited him back. I love the story. When Calvin arrived back in Geneva, you know what he did? He climbed into the pulpit, and he picked up at the very same text where he left off four years before. <laughs> I always imagined him climbing into the pulpit and saying, now, the last time we were together, we looked at verse... And then he just jumped right into it. And he began to preach. He preached the word of God in season and out of season. And it brought transformation to Geneva. The city was literally transformed. Whole books have been written about this. It was one of the most remarkable transformations of any society in the history of the Western world. People suddenly began to live holy lives. They established public education. They built hospitals for the poor and for the sick. 
They even brought the silk industry in because Calvin told them that capital was not a curse. It was a blessing from God, the means by which God would use it to improve the lot of his people. And Geneva was absolutely transformed. And what brought about the transformation? It wasn't electing a whole new group of 200. What transformed Geneva was the power of the Word of God, which transformed human hearts. And as human hearts were transformed, society was transformed. And as society was transformed, the world became a different place. It began to look less and less like the kingdoms of this world and more and more like the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And let me tell you, that is still the recipe for social reform in the world today. The Bible is not only the authority for our lives, it is sufficient for the task. It is the only thing that will allow the church to do the church's business, to do God's work in God's way, and it is the only thing that he promises to bless. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. John Wesley once said, I want to know one thing. I want to know the way to heaven. I want to know how to grow in Christ and land safe on that happy shore. Show me the way. He said, thanks be to God, God has shown us the way. He has written it down in a book. He said, give me that book. At all costs, give me the book of God and make me a man of one book. God has given us a book. By his grace, may we, may we be men and women of one book. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus' teaching. We thank you that not one jot nor one tittle shall in any wise pass. We thank you that the Bible is authoritative. It is not a dead letter. It is a living word. It speaks to us across time and space. And it is not only authoritative for our lives, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. It is also sufficient for the task at hand. Grant us the grace to be the people of the book. For it's in honoring your word that we honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.